This morning we conclude our mixtape series. Uh, if you haven't been here, this is a series that's on the book of Psalms. We've been at 150 different songs over the past uh, eight weeks. We haven't looked at all 150 of them. We've chosen a few to look at. Uh, but these songs have been written over the course of about 900 years. And today we've got a speaker who is coming up to speak, kind of giving me a little break, and I'm excited about it. Sean Cronin is with us today. Uh, Sean is actually with Passion for Planting. Uh, he is the lead trainer for Passion for Planting. There, he trains church planters. He helps them with this year-long residency that they do to prepare them to go out and plant churches. Um, the cool thing about that is the church that Passion for Planting is a part of, New Life Christian Church, birthed out of the journey back in the early 90s. So it's kind of a neat connection that we have with those guys. Uh, Sean is also a personal trainer at the End Zone in Chantilly, so he's got a lot of muscles that he can probably show us if he wanted to. Um, but we're glad he's here today. If you've been with the journey for a long time, in fact, in the early 90s, you remember Brett Andrews was here. He was an associate pastor. Sean is actually Brett's nephew. Uh, and so it's cool to have Sean with us this morning. And for all of our Skins fans out there, you think it's bad for you. He's a Buffalo Bills fan. So uh, that tells you how terrible life can be. But we're excited to have Sean here today. I appreciate him coming out and finishing up our series this morning. All right. I guess that's my cue to get started. All right. Can you hear me? My mic on? All right. So yeah, that, uh, that mixtape actually reminds me of uh, the music that we play during our workouts. So um, one of the things that I do at, at the end zone is run this uh, adult boot camp fitness class called Adrenaline. Um, and it's, it's awesome because I get paid to make people's lives miserable for an hour. <laughs> you know, I just yell at them and scream at them and they're sweating. Um, and it's awesome. Um, and I've, I've been doing the physical fitness stuff for about five years now. It wasn't what I went to college for. I went to seminary. And, but I started working at the end zone. They were like, well, if you get certified, we'll give you a job as a trainer. I'm like... Sounds good to me. So I, I've been working in that field for about five years now, and one thing I've learned about fitness is one thing that's consistent is change. You know, there's always new research about how we're training athletes, and so the way we're going to train an athlete today is probably not how we're going to be tra- training them a year from now. And, you know, we're always changing, okay, what's good for us in terms of eating? Like, are carbs good for us or not? But one thing that's been consistent is how essential rest is to your health. Um, we once had this one um, doctor come in and talk to us, and he says, he asked us, what is the most important thing you can do for your athletes? And we're, you know, we're thinking about, well, it's, it's what we do you know, when we train them, right? No, no, no. It's, well, it's their nutrition, right? He goes, no, it's, it's rest. It's making sure that they're getting eight hours of sleep every night. And, and I, I began to do more research on it, and I began to see, okay, I guess you're right. You know, I, I began to see that only when we get deep sleep, getting into the stages four and five of sleep that our brain actually produces the growth hormones and the the stress hormones that helps our bodies recover. You know, so athletes are coming up to me, hey, Sean, how do I, what do I do to recover from this injury? Or what do I do to be in better shape? And I say, well, you got to sleep. You got to get good sleep so that your body can be healthy, so your mind can be healthy. You can be healthy emotionally, but also spiritually. And that's what we're going to talk about today, is how essential rest is to our health but not only that, but, but how do we do it? How do we get this, this rest? Because I, I would imagine for most of us, it's not a knowledge problem. Like most of us know that rest is essential to our health. For some of us, it's more of an execution problem. You know, we look back in, in the first pages of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, we see that God has set a precedence for us to rest. So when he creates the world, he, he, he spends one day creating the world, and, and what does he do at the end of the day? He rests. He looks at what he has done and he says, it is good. 
And so that is part of the rest that we want to find for ourselves this morning, is being able to look at our work, look at our lives, and say, it is good. It is good. And we're going to do this, we're going to kind of explore this idea of rest by looking at Psalm 62. So if you would, look up, look up in your Bibles in Psalm 62. I think we'll have it up on the screen if you want to read along here. But in Psalm 62, King David gives us this psalm and is encouraging us to find rest, this rest that we desperately need. Psalm, psalm 62, David says this. He says, Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down? This leaning wall, this tottering fence. Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Yes, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress, I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my fortress, or my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. And so these are the anxious thoughts of a king who's on the run for his life. Many scholars believe that David wrote this psalm when he was running from his son Absalom. You know, this is later in his life after he had sinned with Bathsheba and all of a sudden Absalom, his son, begins to believe, hey, hey I could do better than my father could. I'd be a better king for Israel. And so he begins to kind of plot against his father and starts this political and this, this propaganda machine against his father. So people would come to Jerusalem and he would say, well, what's, what are you coming to Jerusalem for? Do you, do you want to see the king? Do you have some problem? And, and he would hear their problems and he'd say, oh, my dad can't help you with that. But if I was king... I'd be able to help you. And so tell, tell me your problems. And he begins to, to gather this following and all these people who are loyal to him. And he starts this revolution, this revolt, and now David is on the run for his life. And so put yourself in David's shoes. You know, you, maybe once you were the runt of your family, no one thought you would amount to anything. But then you became a national hero. You defeated the giant Goliath. And you became this mighty king. And you conquered your enemies. You've worked so hard to build this kingdom, this career. And man, everything was going for you. But then now... Now everything's been stripped from you. You've been stripped of your title. You've been stripped of your work. You've been stripped of your kingdom. And now in the midst of the silence, when the work has ceased, you've got to figure out who you are. And David's got to realize that I am more than my accomplishments. I'm more than what people think about me. I'm a child of God. And it's only then where we find rest for our souls as David is trying to find for himself here. So how do we find this rest? How do we find this rest for our souls that David is describing to us here in this psalm? Well, to help us, I want to refer to the work of a journalist named Judith Shulevitz. She's a, a Jewish journalist who wrote an article, a fascinating article, several years ago in the New York Times magazine titled, Bring Back the Sabbath. And in this article, she explains how she was raised in a Jewish home and they would observe the Sabbath once a week. But as a kid, she didn't see any value in it. And then, so, so she, we, when she went off to kind of, to, uh, as a young adult, to live her own life, she admits she stopped practicing the Sabbath. But eventually, weekends would come around, and she started feeling this restlessness in her heart. She found that she couldn't rest. And, and that made her explore okay, what is, what is the Sabbath all about? 
And she starts her, her, her article referring to the work of a Hungarian psychologist named Sander Frenese. And Sander Frenese, he, he started seeing all these patients who would come to him, and they started complaining about how they would feel this sickness just on Sunday afternoons. All week long, they were fine. All week long, everything was fine. But Sunday afternoon would roll around, and all of a sudden, they would get headaches, stomach aches. They'd become anxious, struggle with kind of these, these bouts of depression. And, and he coined their disorder Sunday neurosis. And, and Sunday neurosis isn't the, oh, no, where'd the weekend go? Like, I've got to go back to work tomorrow. Like, this is depressing. No, it's not that. It's actually just the opposite. It's all of a sudden when the work has ceased and you're left alone with who you are. Austrian psychiatrist Viktor Frankl later described Sunday neurosis this way. He said, Sunday neurosis, that kind of depression which afflicts people who become aware of the lack of content in their lives when the rush of the busy week is over and the void within themselves becomes manifest. So Sunday neurosis is, okay, what happens to us when the opportunity to rest presents itself, but we can't because we're not comfortable with who we are, so we cover up who we, who we are with what we do. Now, maybe the idea of the weekend blues makes no sense to you because, like, you, like, wake up on, or you, on a Saturday morning, you're like, that's when I sleep in until, like, 2 p.m., and you just watch Netflix for the rest of the day. You know, and if that's you, like, congratulations. Like, you have in some form or fashion learned how to rest. There might be some other issues we have to talk about, okay? But that's a different sermon. But then there are others of us who, like, our greatest fear is waking up on a Saturday and having nothing productive to do. Because in the absence of productivity, in the absence of, of work, we're left alone with who we are and we become, we become restless. And, and so we've got to figure out, okay, so, so, so what do we do? You know, what is the solution to finding this rest? So, so that, you know, instead of the weekend just being a time where either we're really anxious or depressed because all of a sudden all the work has ceased and, you know, everything we've done all week long and this, this the sense of satisfaction that we get from our work, when that ceases, we, we can't be comfortable ourselves. Either, okay, we're overcome with anxiety or depression or we just fill it up with more work, with, with more chores, with more errands, with more things to do so we can feel better about ourselves. How, 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 how do we really find rest? Well, Julia Shulevich, she kind of gets at it, hints at the solution to it when she, she kind of reflects on how various cultures um, have, have observed the Sabbath. She said once, you know, it was basically pretty much all just a tradition within Western cultures to observe it. She says this, she says, On that weekly holiday observed by all present-day civilized humanity, not only did drudgery give way to festivity, family gatherings, and occasionally worship, but the machinery of self-censorship shut down, to stilling the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. Yeah, see, see here, Judith, she, she's, she's revealing to us, okay, what makes it so hard for us to rest? What makes it so elusive? It's because of that eternal inner murmur of self-reproach, that inner critic that says we can't stop. We, 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 we can't take a break. We, we can't be satisfied with our work We've got to continue to accomplish more because we're not good enough yet. We're always trying to prove ourselves. Do we, do we have any Rocky fans in the house? Anybody like the movie Rocky? Yeah, any Rocky fans? Okay, so I love the movie Rocky. 
I remember it was uh, fourth grade. I think I had just finished fourth grade. My mom, we were, it was summer vacation. We were on our way to Wegmans to go pick up some groceries. And my mom said, hey, Sean, I think it's uh, time that you watch the movie Rocky. I'm like, never heard of it. What is it, about some stones? Like, didn't make any I was like, that doesn't sound, sound like a very fun movie to me, Mom. She goes, oh, no, no, it's about a boxer. And I was like, okay, like, I'll, I'll watch a movie about people clobbering one another. Sounds good. You know, as a fourth grade boy, I was like, sounds good to me. And so we get this movie. I watch it. Man, I thought it was like the best movie ever. I wanted to be Rocky. Like, I wanted to chug raw eggs. Like, I wanted to run through the streets of Little Lily. I wanted to run up to the, the steps of the art gallery and raise my arms in triumph. Like, that's, I, I wanted to be Rocky. And that's why I was so sorely disappointed when I watched Rocky 2. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, how could Rocky 1 be so good and Rocky 2 be so terrible? Like, it doesn't make any sense. But I think I know why Rocky 2 was so bad. Because in Rocky 1, Rocky, he admits, he admits why he was working so hard, why, why he was clobbering those slabs of beef. He, he tells Adrian the night before he goes and, and fights Creed, he says, he says, I don't really even need to win. He says, I just want to go the distance with Creed so that I can prove that I'm not, just not another bum from the neighborhood. And, and so what's motivating our hero? It's the eternal inner murmur of, of self-reproach. And does he ever still that voice? Does he ever find satisfaction? No. That's why they have to make five more that are terrible. (laughs) Maybe you're not a Rocky fan. Maybe you're more of a a runner. And you like the movie Chariots of Fire. Maybe you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire. It was another one of those movies that my mom made me watch as a kid. And this movie, it actually tells the true story of two Olympic athletes and kind of shows how they viewed their lives as track, as track athletes. They were, they were Olympians in the 1924 Olympics. They, they represented their country, England, in these games. And, and it, it kind of juxtaposes, compares these two different athletes. One is Eric Liddell, who actually ends up becoming a missionary in China after the games. But he is so content with who he is beyond the track when he finds out that the event that he is slated to race in, that, that he's actually favored in, is going to be raced a, run on a Sunday, he says, I don't need to do it. I'm not going to run it. I'll just run in some other event. And, and then there, there's his roommate, or his teammate on the other side of the fence, who, Harold Abrams, who's never known such contentment. And he's wrapped up his identity up in his, in his career as an athlete that, that he, he puts so much pressure on himself, he can't even enjoy his sport. And in fact, he says right before, he confesses right before this final race, why he runs. He tells the team, and he says, and now in one hour's time, I'll be out there again, and I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide, referring to the track lane. He says, with ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. So why does he run? He runs in order to prove himself, that he is somebody, that he's valuable, that he's worthy of living. He's trying to still the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach, and as the movie shows that he never finds that contentment. Even though he wins the gold medal, it's never enough. And I would imagine that that most of us, at least from time to time, hear that voice. That voice that says, you you can't stop working. You're not good enough yet. You're, You're not valuable, and we keep working because of it. I mean, when I was working on this sermon, I worked from home. I stayed at home so I could find a quiet place to work. And my roommate who works from home comes down and sees me. He goes, oh, you haven't left for work yet. And I go, oh, I've been working. Don't you worry about that. I've been working. And instantly my reaction was to justify myself and say, no, I've been working. Why? Because I don't see myself 
the way that God does as a child of God who he loves me and I don't have to prove myself anymore. You see, that when the Bible encourages us to rest, it's always a command to help us to trust God. Hey, learn to trust him as your heavenly father who loves you and, 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 and is going to look out for you and provide for us, for us all we need. And we, we look back in the Old Testament, the very first time the Israelites were commanded to practice Sabbath to rest was when they were transitioning from being slaves to, to being God's children in, in Israel and have their own land. And, and God says, hey, I'm going to provide for you manna on, on the way. But you've got to trust me. You've got to trust me as your Heavenly Father who's going to provide for you. And I'm going to provide for you every single day. And, and so, so take enough food, just enough for what you need today. Trust that I will provide for you tomorrow. And so don't take more than you need. I'll provide for you tomorrow. And if you, if you don't trust me, if you take more than you need, the leftovers are going to spoil. It's going to, cre- going to create a mess. And those who didn't trust God ended up having a mess on their hands. But then he said, but, but on Friday, you need to collect twice as much. Because I don't want you to have to work on Saturday. I'm not going to provide for you on Saturday. So trust me that the leftovers that you have from Friday, I'll preserve them. I'll take care of them. You can trust me. And those who trusted God had their needs provided for them. And they realized that God was their heavenly father who loved them and was taking care of them. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning, okay, so what, what mixtape is going on in our head? What, what voice are we listening to? Are we listening to the voice of the inner critic? That eternal inner murmur of self-reproach, or do we see ourselves as, as children of God, who God, God says, I love you, and I have provided for you. Now, this was the lie that, that Satan got Adam and Eve to believe, that they weren't good enough. And, and so when they were in the garden, and God says, hey, Adam and Eve, you are very good. That's what he said to them, right? You are very good. They said, we, we don't believe it, God. Thanks for the compliment, but we don't trust you we're not complete yet. We need more knowledge. We're not, we're not there yet. And so they, they, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and their eyes were opened. And all of a sudden they, they had what they wanted to, but it, they realized it wasn't enough. They realized it wasn't really what they needed. And all of a sudden they began to feel shame, nakedness, and they were separated from God. And what was their reaction? Their instant reaction was to work, was to make clothes for themselves, to cover up their nakedness, to cover up their shame. But God says, no, matter, no, no amount of work will ever be good enough to satisfy, to cover up your sin, to cover up your insecurities. And so he shed blood. He took animals and he, he killed them and he sh- covered them with the skins of these animals, giving us a, f- a foretaste of what he would do in Jesus, in, in providing his only son who would die on a cross to shed his blood so that our identity could be found not in our work, but in his and I think that's why when Jesus, when he looked at all these people in his world who were trying to gain a sense of satisfaction, trying to earn their rest by observing the Sabbath. You know, there was all these like Sabbath police in Jesus' day. People who kind of built all these laws around the Sabbath saying you can't walk more than six-tenths of a mile and you can't put out a fire and you can't heal people. You can't do all these things. And they said, you know, we're, we're doing this so that we can earn our salvation with God and we can be good in his sight. He says, you guys need a, a reworking of what the Sabbath, what rest is all about. And he, him and his disciples, they're, they're out in a grain field one day and they're picking, they're picking grain and they, uh, the religious leaders are like, how dare you do that? Like, that's against the law. And he says, guys, understand that I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He says, I, I am the one that the Sabbath is pointing to. I, I am the one who, is, who has come to provide you with real soul rest. 
And then I love it one day he's in the synagogue and he sees a man there with a shriveled hand. And he knows he's, this is going to upset the guys. You know, this is really going get to them, get them going because they know, he knows that if he heals them, he heals this guy, they're going to say, hey, you broke the law again. And so he gets this man, he stands him up in front of everybody in the synagogue and he says, look at this man. He's got a shriveled hand. And he says, is it, is it right for me to heal this guy or not? Of course, in their mind, it's not, but he heals him anyways. And this infuriates the religious leaders to the point that they want to kill him. They plot to kill him and they do. And in so doing, they make him the Lord of the Sabbath. Because on the cross, Jesus experiences eternal restlessness. Why why do we see him writhing in pain on the cross? It was because he's experienced the wrath of our Heavenly Father. Isaiah 57 says that the wicked find no peace. They can find no rest, and that is what Jesus was experiencing on the cross. So that our our souls could find rest. And in in the pain... In the agony, what does Jesus say? He says, it is finished. It has been accomplished. God's work has been satisfied. So what makes our work oftentimes so toilsome and so laborsome? It's not oftentimes the work. It's not the work that we're doing, but it's the work behind the work. It's that, that desire in us to prove that we are somebody, to manage what people think about us, because we don't see ourselves the way that God does. But on the cross... The work behind the work was finished. And, and even in Jesus' death, he observed the Sabbath. You know, just think about it. You know, Jesus died, he was put in a tomb, and what are people saying? People are murmuring about Jesus. Oh, he wasn't who he said he was. Man, he saved other people, he couldn't save himself. You know, his closest friends, his disciples are wondering, man, what, he let us down. He led us astray. And while everyone's ridiculing him, he doesn't feel the need to justify himself. He lays in that tomb and he is resting because he knows who he is. He knows his identity. He knows what his father thinks about him. And he waits for his father to vindicate him. And Jesus is is inviting us to enter into that rest, to be secure in our identity and who we are. And so we, we can cease from the work behind the work, always trying to prove ourselves. And that's why Jesus says to his followers, he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He says, come and find rest. Rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and you, and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what is this yoke? It's his righteousness. It's his blood that covers us. That allows us to realize that we are children of God. That when God sees us, he says, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I loved, with whom I am well pleased. Not because of what you have done but because what is what Christ has done for you and how much, how much I value you and love you. In Isaiah chapter 65, Isaiah pictures heaven, pictures the new heavens and earth, and what is there? It's work. You know, God says we will work in heaven. He says we will build houses. We will plant vineyards. But the work won't be toilsome. It won't be laborsome. Why? Because the work behind the work has ceased. And we will know that we aren't what we do our accomplishments, our titles, our promotions. But we will have a secure identity in Christ. And our souls will finally be at rest. So that's where we're headed. So how do we take steps closer to that reality? I just want to wrap up our time together with kind of just four pieces of application for how we can take steps closer to that rest. The first point of application is this. Learn to trust God Every day. 
You know, wake up every morning. I know it just seems kind of, kind of easy and sometimes we don't do the easy things, but wake up every morning and tell yourself who you are. That you're, that you're not your title. That you're not what you do for a living. That you're not you know, equal to the amount of money that you have in your bank account or how many kids you have or how, how successful you might be. You are a child of God. You are a son of a mighty king. And if, you, if you've never taken the step of being baptized... You know, take that step. At least consider it. Consider, okay, what do I need to do in order to rest from my work? Surrender your work and say, my work will never be good enough. I can only rest in Christ and what he has done for, for me. And identify yourself with his, his death, his burial, resurrection, and allow him to raise you up into new life. And, and continue to trust God that he knows what he's talking about when he says in Hebrews 10 that don't, don't give up coming together as some are in the habit of doing, because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, that when we come together, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is amongst us, and we can help recharge each other, recharge each other's spiritual batteries as we share with each other his love, his Holy Spirit. So make a commitment to trust him and to worship weekly. Second point of application is this. Learn to take breaks. You know, make sure you're taking vacation, taking time off. You know, don't think, man, I, I'm so important. I only get four hours of sleep every night. It's like, you're not that important, okay? And if you're a Christian, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, so start treating it with, with some respect. You don't know, understand that, yes, you might be getting more work done because you're working tirelessly now, but in the end, it'll burn you out. And, and you won't be getting further along when you end up burnt out. So take breaks. You know, learn to take your lunch break. I know it's easy to just kind of work through your lunch break, but if you get a lunch break, like take a lunch break and and go spend some time with God. So learn to take breaks, take a vacation, have some fun. Number three, get accountability. You know, some of us, okay, maybe we're at a season of life where it's just really hard for us to be able to practice Sabbath and, and to take a break. And there'll be seasons, like maybe you're in medical, med, med school, maybe you're you know, in law school and you've got to study for boards and, and bars and you've got to do residencies, you've got to put in long hours. And maybe, maybe practicing the Sabbath, you can't do it like you, you should be doing it. Maybe you're starting a business, maybe you're, maybe you're working really hard at some point, but you have to say, okay, at the end of these three years, at the end of these two years, you need somebody in your life who's going to pull you back. Because you're going to get just in the routine, in the rut of, you know, kind of gaining that sense of satisfaction from your work. And you're going to be running hard, and that's going to, just going to be the pace that you're always going to run at if you don't have somebody who's holding you accountable and pulling you back. You know, maybe, maybe get account, accountable with your wife, your, your husband, your, your kids, and say, we're going to get together once a week, twice a week, X amount of times this week to have dinner as a family. And we're not going to be looking at our phones we're not going to have the computer out. Okay, we're going to focus on one another. We're going to rest. We're going to enjoy one another's company. And we're going to thank God for what he's provided for us. So get accountability. Have somebody in your life who's going to pull you back and remind you that we need to practice rest. And fourth one is, is develop a fun habit. Learn to, learn to do something that's fun, that's different from what you do vocationally. So like if you're a software engineer... Like, don't spend your weekends writing code so you can hack into someone's world of Warcraft routine. No, no, not, not good. Not good. It's got to be different. Change of pace. You know, if, if you sit at a desk all week, one thing you can do that maybe is the most recharging, most restful is to get outside 
and to go for a run or go for a walk or, you know, go do something active and enjoy God and enjoy what he's created and enjoy what he's provided for us. And one thing that we do every week in order to recharge our batteries, in order to, to rest, is communion. And, and we remember what Christ has done for us to, to still the eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. Where, where for 2,000 years, Christians have been gathering around this table where we remember Christ's body and, and, and his blood that was shed for us to bring us to him. And so that's what we're going to do in the next few moments. As the band comes up, they're going to get ready to play a song. And, and maybe you're here for the first time and you're kind of still figuring out this whole Jesus thing. And you're kind of weirded out by communion. And I, I just want to say, if, if you're here and that's you, don't feel obligated to take this meal. Maybe just take the next few moments to be still, to rest, to, to maybe just spend a few moments giving thanks for what you have to be grateful for this week. But if you are a follower of Christ, take the next few moments, put down the pens, put down the phones, put down anything, all the distractions, and remind yourself of who you are, of the high price that God paid for you to adopt you into his family.